Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. Hi and welcome back. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Nav Channer. Nav is a GP partner. He also sits as a clinical director on the National Association of Primary Care. Nav has a passion for education and training and previously he sat as a director for education and quality with Health Education England South London and was also a postgraduate dean for general practice and community-based education. In this episode, we talk about population health management, workforce redesign. We take a trip down memory lane and have a chat about community education provider networks, which are now known as training hubs. We talked about the importance of relationships when building our healthcare networks. And hopefully this podcast serves as a reminder and reinforces that when we make the decisions that we do, we are putting the population at the heart of our decision making. And I hope that you enjoy it. Hi now, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks Tara. And thank you so much for having me uh, on the podcast in, in the first place. My pleasure, my pleasure. Could you give our listeners a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure, Tara. So I'm I'm Nav Chan. I'm a a GP. Primarily, that's my main focus. I've been a GP in East Merton for now 29 years. I've also previously, Tara, been the chairman of the National Association of Primary Care and also involved in healthcare education and training in a variety of roles. But most recently, a few years ago, as postgraduate dean for community-based education in London. Okay. Are you still involved with the NAPC? I am, Tara. Yes, I'm, I'm a direct clinical director for NAPC, involved in uh, some of the projects that we, that we are currently running. So one of the, I don't know if you'd call it a project, but is the primary care home. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, indeed, Tara. Many colleagues have contributed to the ideology behind this, including uh, way back in the beginning, David Colin Tomei, and then more recently, my colleague James Kingsland, who with others helped to uh, shape the design and delivery of the model that we are talking about. But the ideology behind it, Tara, is, is really starting to think about how we can improve the health inequalities uh, of our people in our communities around whom we, we should shape care in a little bit more of a joined up fashion. And I, perhaps I'll just talk about the name first, Primary Care Home. The idea being that this was a home, uh, a home for a population. Uh, so it was, it's not really meant to describe a structure or a building, but very much around how we bring together services, join them up, connect them 
so that the, the real benefit is felt by our people in our community. So that, that was a notion behind a home and primary care being the sort of the, the first point of contact for a lot of those services and the means by which we joined them up. So does that make sense, Tara, that the term primary care home very much started from that philosophy? So, so I, I guess the, the key thing then is, in my professional life, Tara, the um, health inequalities of the population that I look after have, have got worse, not better, over a, over a you know, quarter of a century or so. And so it's, it's made me realise, perhaps latterly, in the, the latter stages of my career, and perhaps the penny didn't drop earlier, that some of the things that we were doing weren't really improving health outcomes for people, particularly in the communities and neighbourhoods that we were working in. So, so it kind of led me and others to think about how if we join things up better, so that's, you know, uh, physical health and mental health, health and social care, uh, the voluntary sector, primary care, secondary care, working more closely with local government, could we describe a, a method, an approach that really improved or really had a focus on improving health outcomes for people? So that's really very much the sort of foundation or the sort of underpilling philosophy of the, of the primary care home. What's the difference between a primary care home and a primary care network? If you remember, the primary care home or the kind of design of that and the sort of methodology was tested well before primary care networks came into being. So primary care networks, if you like, were born out of the, uh, the testing of the ideology around the primary care home. So that's the first thing. So a lot of the early work shaped some of the design around, uh, around primary care networks. For example, the targeted focus on populations of around 30 to 50,000 registered people. That, that came from the work we described in the early stages of primary care home. So the primary care network really is a sort of evolution, if you like, of that early model to think about how that could then be implemented nationally at scale across the country using some of the contractual levers that we now know are in place. So it, it was very much uh, an evolution of that early work of the primary care home. And I still think the philosophy of, around primary care networks, as people accelerate through that development, will, I hope, continue to focus much more on population health management, on thinking about reducing health inequalities, and again, how we join up services. But whilst also recognising that general practice, particularly as a component of primary care, uh, needs to be strengthened as much as possible in terms of resources and workforce and, and better use of technology and all the various things that we now start to see happen. So I'm hoping that those are all great foundations to enable then primary care networks to start thinking much, much more about population health and how we can improve that. How would you describe population health? So that's a really good question, Tara, and that's so difficult to give that in a concise way. Because as you know, there's quite a lots of terms that are used, such as public health and population health and health and well-being and population medicine and population health management. And, and they all kind of, they all have similarities and constructs that, that are shared, but it's often quite confusing, isn't it, what we all mean? So my, my view is, uh, this is my personal view, by the way, and this yeah. is not necessarily the right view, is that a population health is a way of thinking about your population with a view to improving the health and well-being outcomes for that population. It really, really requires thinking about the whole population rather than just bits of it. Although, of course, you might start with uh, small groups within that population, but the intention is to focus across the whole population with a view of improving health and well-being outcomes for that whole population. So does that make sense around, you know, what does population health mean? And of course, a lot of those outcomes are not just attributable to health alone. So they will include the things that we know, such as the broader determinants of health, you know, where people live, how they live, the environmental and social factors, 
factors around employment and you know health literacy and so on so there's a whole raft of things that, that play into that now population health management in my view is is a way in which you know particularly healthcare staff and workforce can really start to break population health requirements down into little chunks into little manageable chunks so you can actually start to see or you can start to think about things you can be doing now that might have an impact on health and well-being for for those population groups in both now and in the future can you give me an example of uh, population health management yeah and how yeah. you're breaking it into little chunks yeah, yeah so uh, i think um, colleagues within napc people like steve leitner mark davis and others have, have really helped us understand how you can uh, whilst retaining a focus on the whole population so let's look at a network population of say 30 to 50,000 people that sounds quite a lot of people to sort of suddenly start thinking about in all of these terms but we might start to break those uh, that population down into into components which the technical word of which is segments and those segments could be broken down by a life course or age so children and young people working age adults or older people, or it could be broken down by people who are you know, currently well, but we think they may have risk factors so that might develop illness in the future, people with stable long-term conditions and people with complex care needs. And so, so that's one way of breaking a, a whole population down into chunks. And then even within each of those particular areas, you might become more defined around uh, particular population groups that you you would look at so for example you know adults with stable long-term conditions you might say well let's just focus on people with with type 2 diabetes and just think about how we can you know in terms of improving their uh, planned proactive care in the future what we could start doing for that particular cohort or you know people with complexity people with frailty how we might look at the, the people with the greatest need the first you know the people that we think have got the greatest requirements at the moment and then start to shape a care response that might improve the care for those people so does that make yeah. sense it's a, starting to use ways in which you can break that whole population down into segments and as you know there's quite an industry in terms of data and analytics that can help you know can help with that but the key thing is to not just stay with that group but start thinking about what can we do then across the whole population? How do we focus back out and look at the lens of the whole population? And how do we engage other services such as local authorities, services or voluntary sector organisations, our colleagues in other healthcare sectors to really coordinate the care that we provide the, those particular groups of people? You said the data can really help, but sometimes the data can hinder because if sometimes we don't know what we're looking at, we don't know what it means, we don't know yeah. the real implication, the data is always a little bit out of date or inaccurate. So yeah. what advice would you give? And you, you also sit as a non-executive director in secondary care, don't you? That's correct. Yeah, I'm a non-executive director of a hospital. Yeah, in South So West you've London. got a, a fantastic broad breadth yeah. of experience. So you can see it from the kind of primary and secondary side. Give us your advice on how to interpret data, when to, and when to discard it, because everybody's got their, you know what you see in practice every day. Yeah. And some of that data may not capture that soft stuff yeah. that you experience. Yeah. yeah so, so Tara, I think um, that's, a, again, that's a really good question. I think there's, the first thing to say is that all, pretty much all the data you need is already there. So it, it's already in existence. And sometimes I think that we constantly strive for more and more information 
to kind of really be clear about what we want to do next. But that in itself takes time and delays something actually happening. So if you remember, population health management has got three elements. One is getting enough understanding of the needs of your population. And I, I meant enough so that you don't need to keep gathering more and more information. But have you got enough to start thinking about what you need to do next? So which, which particular population groups are being you know, are popping out for priority? And how do you start engaging those population groups in a co-production around care design? But the final bit is the bit called management, which is actually doing something. And I sometimes worry that the, the whole industry of population health analytics and health management is all about collecting information rather than moving through those stages to actually getting on and doing something. So in, in essence, Tara, I think if there's enough information for a group of people to start thinking about, I wonder what we could do next about this group of people who live in our community or their patients or that they're residents. If there's enough information for a group of people to start thinking, actually, there might be a need here. I think that's enough to get on with and start thinking about how we engage those people and, and start thinking of a care program that might improve their health and well-being but not just to keep waiting and waiting and waiting for more and more information to be gathered to, to help you shape the, the design. So I've not answered your question specifically, but I'm saying there's enough information, whether it's in your in the medical record of the, of, of the GP practice or in uh, local authority information or in terms of utilization information from secondary care and other sources, all of which can be used in a way that helps prioritize particular groups of people without necessarily needing to spend a lot more time and effort gathering more and more information. Should organisations and practices and networks, should they strive to meet the national average when you get this baseline data that comes out? Or I suppose how meaningful is the national average when each pockets and each population is very different? It is. And I guess that goes to the heart, in my view, Tara, of population health management, because if we look at information at a national level, inevitably things average out, don't they? That there are, you know, there are sort of means and standard deviations and, and it averages things out. And, and of course, that's important to look at trends at various population sizes, whether it's national, whether it's regional. But when we're looking at the language of general practice, or primary care networks, we're actually looking at quite small defined populations. And it's really important to start thinking about what information can we target at that level that starts to shape, as I said earlier, the types of care approaches we need to put in place. You hit the nail on the head, Tara, because I mean, I know you've worked in lots of parts of, of London, particularly maybe other, other areas, is that the needs of populations change quite dramatically, don't they? As you, Even if you go a few miles from place A to place B, the, the characteristic and the need of the population changes quite dramatically, both in terms of its you know, demographics, maybe the deprivation and so on. So it's really important then to have, whilst we have national data sets or regional data sets, it's really also important then to start thinking about what's the local information that guides us to, to do things differently. You know, practices are very different in terms of the way they work. They're not all the same. The offer is not always exactly the same, but sometimes it's nuanced, isn't it, around the needs of people. And I guess we've got to get better at being big and small uh, in the way that we think about things rather than just always either being big or being really small. We've got to start thinking a bit more intelligently about how do we target resources? And I mean that in the most broad sense, not just, you know, primary care resources. How do we target the resources in the most focused way for the people who need that the most 
based on our rich understanding of the communities that we live or work within. And, and I think sometimes the national information doesn't always enable us to target that local solution in the right way. So our paths crossed around, I'm going to say 2015-16, when... Well, you've got a very good memory, Tara, if you can remember <laughs> that. <laughs> CEPNs. Oh, yes. Uh, they were called... I remember them. Yep, Community Education Provider Networks. And they were looking at professional development and multidisciplinary working in general practice. That's where it started. When you think of CPNs and now they're training hubs and you think of your journey when setting up the primary care home, what advice would you give to those primary care networks that are maybe faltering and that they haven't quite got going just yet? I mean, it, it's never anything for me to advise anyone. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, but I guess as I reflect on what you've just asked me, I think for me, the key thing is that, you know, when colleagues, and I think you may know who some of them are, describe some of the founding principles that sat within CEPN's Community Education Provider Networks, it was very much about thinking about the development of the workforce around a population health requirement. So even though, even though we've described population health management in a different way in different models such as the primary care home or primary care networks very much the founding philosophy of CEPNs was how do we improve the health and well-being of a population by ensuring our workforce is designed and developed so that it actually really works to improve those population outcomes does that make sense so when we first described CEPNs at the time we recognized that a lot of education training monies were quite rightly being spent on say the professional development of of individuals within organizations whether it's in secondary care or primary care or perhaps less so in primary care because there wasn't that much money being targeted to to workforce development in primary care at the time but essentially, while that's important, it may not always have led to improvements in health and well-being outcomes for populations, as we talked about earlier. So the whole idea behind CEPNs was, could we understand better the need of a population in a locality? And uh, could we then start thinking about what, what would we need to do to improve you know, the health of that population? And then could we start to think about what, how we could mobilize education training resources across the sector, really, or across that population? to start targeting approaches such as, as you said, around multidisciplinary learning, you know, interprofessional learning, which I think is a, a good way of understanding how you can from and about other people in the context of uh, how you provide care and try and bring that much more, um, you know, greater integration between professionals and organizations and systems as a result of education training driving that approach. So that, that was, and I'm sure you'll remember this, Tara, uh, that was uh, the, uh, the early work to try and describe. And of course, initially, we, we very much focused on trying to get resources into primary care to support the workforce development of primary care, because it felt that that was a sector that had been impoverished in terms of workforce you know, development funding for many years. But that was a, a way of then trying to build these links and relationships around interprofessional learning that could support improvements in health outcomes. So that's, so, so I guess going, going back to your question, the important thing is to see that if we are now working in integrated care networks, whether they're primary care networks or whether they're a place level or whether they're a, you know, a bigger level, you know, we also need to be thinking about how we target the education resources so that those things are aligned. So if we're trying to improve population health outcomes from a service point of view, we've also got to bring along the education training funding to support that. So it really all connects. 
and not feels that we're still operating in different buckets or silos around some, some of the funding streams that we see. And Tara, I, I, you have much better understanding of this now because I've not been directly involved in um, CEPMs and, and training hubs and their evolution over the last few years. But I, I guess my question would be, are, are those organizations are really critical, aren't they, to ensure the workforce is designed and developed in the right way? But I wonder whether people are prioritizing that function enough in thinking about how we shape our, um, our care model. And I wonder if I could ask your views or advice on that as to what you, what you think about that. I think when it comes to training hubs and your primary care networks, in some areas, people shoot me, there is a disconnect. You have your training hub on one side and you have your primary care network on another side. And the ethos should be we're all one system. So wherever you are, you're within that network, whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not we should all be together. And I think in some areas there is a real disconnect where the training hub is just looking at training, like mandatory training. And then you've got your primary care network and now they've got the additional additional roles reimbursement. You've got practices and networks recruiting these staff and you've got your training hub that has got specialist skills and experience and so many people that are we use it's very jargony but you know that workforce redesign and interprofessional learning and mdt they they have got the skills and the know-how because all of those people work in practice or they work in the community there is a disconnect and i think it's my advice and my lesson learned around setting up training hubs and i've been involved in 11 wow is that's um, a lot Yeah, and they're all very different, but it comes back to the relationship and the confidence in your in your area. It's not competition. If you can look at another colleague and say, "You know stuff that I don't know," and that would be of benefit to me. And I think sometimes we don't use the word competition, but I think that's what it is that stops people from collaborating. Yes. Yes, and I think it is trying to bring people together but not too many people at the beginning otherwise you're just a committee of yeah. people that just talk and talk and talk yeah. and talk and you, you we produce these big strategy documents but there is no real imp- implementation i think it starts yeah. small you do a project and then it grows and it grows and it grows yeah. and it grows yeah um, and i think people just need to invest time in that and you know and, and actually that reminds me tara there's perhaps we should highlight that point that any transformation that needs to happen whether it's around healthcare or or, or service redesign or whatever is built around the relationships that people have with each other and all communities have with each other and and i think that we sometimes forget that don't we we sometimes think that it can all be done in a big strategic way in a in quite a sterile sort of approach where as opposed to allowing you know, little huddles, little groups of people talk to talk each other and, 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 and sort of think about what they're trying to do together and supporting that kind of community, if you like, of behavior. And I think training hubs, as we now call them, and CPNs, as we used to call them, were very much designed to, uh, to promote that, really, you know, as we were talking about multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary working. So, so can we make sure we don't lose that concept or principle about how important relationships are, particularly, you know, and, and not just in a superficial way, but a, getting a richer understanding about how, how people work, what their needs are, what their skill sets are, because without that, as you said, we're, we're going to struggle, aren't we, to really make some of these connections happen? It's a double-edged sword. The only thing I would say about existing relationships is unintentionally little clicks form. Yes. So 
Yes. You know, I know you and you know yes. somebody else and yes. we can we can meet and get yes. the work done. Yeah. It's about allowing and being open to yes. other skills and expertise and yes. somebody that you don't know. It yes. is really hard. Yes. And, and people get protective. I think that's a good point again, Tara, because I know you asked me, how do we move into workforce redesign, for example, in, in a different way? Perhaps the solution, and I'm going to sound as I'm saying the same thing all the time, is to think population health management as the way that you uh, think about your networks and your groups and the, the types of people that you need to build relationships with, because, uh, because that, I hope, will take us away from cliques and more into well, what do actual people with need require in terms of our workforce and in terms of the way that we need to behave and do things differently so so for example you know if, if we're thinking about diabetes care provision I'm just using that as an example if we're thinking about that then who do we need to have around the table in order to sort of shape the, the diabetes approach in a different way whether it's healthcare staff whether it's social care staff whether it's voluntary staff whether it's communities themselves you know it's there's a different conversation that might start to shape as a result of that approach rather than starting from where we normally start which is from the needs of individuals or you know professional people and I'd add to that because my daughter's got type 1 diabetes oh Tara sorry I didn't mean to talk about diabetes just for that reason oh no no it's fine but I wanted to add the role of industry right into this okay because as an example we use Dexcom we use Omnipod and we've just bought this fantastic uh, glucose necklace and yes. that Talia wears around her neck so we don't always have to be running yes. to find the glucose tablet. Yes. So industry has got a role to play. Yeah. So yeah, just wanted to highlight that. I think as, a, as you know, without, you know, I don't want to exclude any sector. It was just yes. that the mindset changes. If you start with need of a group of people, yeah. then follow through with what skills, you know, what skills do we need to improve a, you know, a program of care for those people? then you end up with a different design or a different group of people or different groups of agencies that you need to speak yeah. to, to the ones that you might normally wish to have around the table. And I think, Tara, the other thing just uh, to reflect on what you just said about your daughter is just that um, let's not forget the individuals themselves with the, uh, yeah. the problem that we're trying to solve because often, and I think we've all struggled with this, we involve people too late, don't we? Or we don't engage them in the right way. And now we have technologies you know, applications, you know, tools that can really help us connect with people rapidly and, and quickly and get a sense of where they're at. But I'm not sure we always use that technology in the, in the right way. I mean, you may disagree on that, but so can we be more, can we be better at engaging people so we really understand what the design should look like? Yeah, I mean, I got told off the other day on on social media because one of my blogs didn't mention patients and okay. that particular project and I, I really did think about some of the projects we do involve patients and some we don't and I think sometimes it's really hard to know to do the right thing and yeah. to know who to engage and and yeah. when to engage and you know it's obvious to engage everybody at the beginning so you bring them all along yeah but yeah so none of us are perfect no, at this. of course of course <laughs> and i think it, as long as the intention comes from a good place yeah it shouldn't be a problem but but again just to you know preface that if we always start with you know the need of a group of people for whom we are designing a system or a, a care approach, then and actually that's a strong value, isn't it? That, yeah. that we will then end up with the right sorts of conversation, the right sort of people around the table. And then just going back to education training, I think a lot of that then is if there are specific skills 
that we need to train our workforce as a result of wanting to do things differently. That's really where, in my view, training hubs and other educational, educationally focused networks or organizations need to come into play because you may need to train your nurses in a slightly different way. Again, just use an example, or you might need to train your allied health professionals to do something differently or your doctors as well. You know, so, so that's really where, you know, the kind of educational approach has to come into play in order to make sure we've got the right skills and behaviors in play. Absolutely. So moving forward, what keeps you up at night? What worries you? Do you know what, Tara, there's a lot of things, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but the, the ones that I can share are um, uh, um, uh, really around, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about this, uh, this conversation that we've been having is I am still really motivated. I'm surprised how motivated I am after, you know, getting on for nearly sort of, you know, 30 years of being a GP about what happens to our people in our, uh, you know, in, in the neighborhood that we look after. Because as I said to you right at the beginning of this conversation, Sometimes, I mean, things have improved in a number of ways in the way that we provide healthcare, and and uh, you know, even post COVID, you know, the the way that we're designing our uh, approach about using technology, and you know, they're all really good things. But but equally, I still see some very sad situations that affect people's lives, and often that's around very poor integration of care, whether it's you know health or social care, or you know physical or mental health. So I worry about that a lot because if we don't get on top of that as soon as we can or if we can't start to change things as soon as we can then our healthcare system is going to really struggle in in the future and we're never going to have enough workforce we're never going to have enough money so how do we how do we pull some of the kind of uh, solutions that we need out of the fire right now to help us kind of get along the way so I, I do worry about that a lot and that's partly why I talk about this stuff with people like you Tara because how do we together share some of the solutions around these things you know, a lot of the solutions that sometimes we need aren't always that expensive. They're not always requiring a great big investment of something, but they just require people to think and do things slightly differently, don't they? And I sometimes worry that we're not focusing on those simple solutions enough before we go for the big sort of expensive solutions like reorganizing buildings or, uh, you know, uh, centralizing services. You know, we sometimes don't always think about the small things that could be done in, in addition or as well as. I think COVID has helped some areas think of quite very cost-effective solutions or maybe not, there may be some short-term solutions, but they've met lots of practices and networks and organisations have come together really quickly. And I've come into contact with lots of organisations which have donated things as free. They never would have done that if it wasn't for COVID. And they've done that because they're putting the population first and it's the right thing to do. And there's still, you know, the business is still surviving. In some cases, it's thriving. So I think sometimes solutions come out of crisis. And other times, I think it's just having the space to think yes. when you're not so busy. And I think yes. lots, I know in healthcare, lots of people are tremendously, tremendously busy. Yes. But not, it's not, not everybody is in the system. And some people yes. have experienced that ability to slow down and think and reflect and be like, why are we doing it like this? Why don't we try yes. this? And so lots of innovation has come out. And you're right, it's been really simple. Yes. Really, really, really simple. Yes. I couldn't agree more with you. And I'm sure you'll have a, another podcast with learning from COVID at some stage. But I think that has taught us a lot, hasn't it? And, and it has taught us about, you know, I, and I guess my reflections would be that, you know, what, what one of the things about change happening is having a common purpose. And COVID gave us that, didn't it? You know, gave 
everyone a common purpose around how we respond to the pandemic. And then the other thing was that for me personally, a lot of the bureaucracy seemed to go away. Things that kind of get in the way, uh, and I'm not going to name what they are because it'll it'll get you know. But a lot of the things that you know that are imposed by our um, our regions and and our CTGs and so on stopped for understandable reasons, and that was really liberating because you didn't have to worry about that. And some of the contractual stuff got put on pause, and so all of those things I think really helped to create, as you say, that space mm. to start thinking about about our uh, our needs around our patients. So, so I, th- I think that's really good. And, and the, the, the use of technology, again, has been a great driver, isn't it, in the, yeah. in the last few months? And my one hope is that we retain the best of that and, and not slip back into a, you know, a model that we were using before, which, you know, some people would argue had strengths, but equally there were lots of problems with some of the ways that we were working pre-COVID. So, mm-hmm. so I'm hopeful that that will be a, a long-lasting legacy for us to be continuing to do things differently. So you have, lots of people know you, you're a popular guy, and I know that you've done loads and loads of interviews. I'm not entirely sure about that, Tara, but you might have to qualify that point. You might have to edit that one out. Um, you've, done, well, you've done lots of interviews. So in trying to ask you a question that maybe people haven't asked you before and people to get to know you in a way that they may not know you, is could you share one thing about yourself that may surprise your colleagues and those that know you so okay well i'm going to be uh, quite honest with you on this one tara i think perhaps sometimes people think that i have uh, a greater confidence in things that i say and do than i i do and i and i guess you know sometimes having been in a, in a sort of public space you start to adopt mannerisms or approaches that people think oh that person really knows you know they feel very confident about what they're saying but actually beneath that lurks quite a vulnerable of quite a strong vulnerability I, I often do worry a lot about the things that I say and how it comes across and uh, and sometimes we don't get it right I don't get it right the thing that I would say is people may not know is I'm a bit of a worrier and I worry and fret a lot about things which may not always immediately come across when <laughs> when people see me sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess that's the one thing I haven't shared before, Tara, with yeah. uh, with colleagues. Yes, I am surprised. Okay, there you go. I knew that would surprise you. <laughs> um, what are you most proud of when you think of your career and the things that you've achieved? What are you most well, proud of? This is going to sound ridiculously trite, but I, I'm proud of all the people that I've had the pleasure of working with. You know, in a concerted way, particularly colleagues within my practice who've tolerated my uh, you know my views and opinions you know we generally without too much fuss but again that could be up for question so so I'm proud of that and I'm, I'm genuinely proud of our team at Cricket Green and I, and I would offer anyone who fancies a visit one day to come and have a look at how our, uh, how, how our team are working and the, I guess the other things are Tara I've always been education training's always been at the heart of my life you know right from when I was a, a very young doctor and so I, I'm perhaps proud of the fact that you know, I've tried to make sure that any any approaches around care program design or um, thinking about technology differently don't lose sight of the fact that we need a, a workforce that's trained and developed and educated in the right way. And so I, I hope that people have begun, you know, to realise that as well. And so I'm proud of the fact that we've managed to integrate a little bit some of those things which are normally always thought of in a different sort of way. Now, thank you so much. If people want to find out more about the NAPC, where can so, they find So just check out our NAPC's website and there'll be links, I think, on that to sort of information that might support colleagues with uh, some of the work that we've been doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tara. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes, a five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode. 